Okay, so friends, we're continuing today. Actually, we are ending today. This will be our last sermon in this particular sermon series through the book of Revelation. Okay, remember, we never set out to do the whole book. We just set out to do two chapters of the book, Revelation chapter two and three, um, where God specifically addresses seven different churches that at the time existed while the book of Revelation was being written. Okay, so we're at the seventh church right now. We're at the last church. And we also saw how since the number seven in the Bible represents wholeness, it represents completeness, we, we, we saw how these evaluations that God gave to these seven churches weren't just meant specifically, strictly, to these seven particular churches. It was actually meant for the whole church. It, it's an evaluation of the state of the whole church, the collective big C church, that has, is, and will exist till Jesus comes again. Okay, so this is a rebuke for, for all of us, including CCC. And as we've seen past few weeks, as a whole, these evaluations have not been great. Especially for this last church that we're gonna talk about today, which is the church in Laodicea, okay? Out of the seven churches, this one was doing particularly bad to the point where God said, we'll read it later, that if they don't repent, he'll spit them out of his mouth. It's pretty bad. But question is, what was so bad about this church in Laodicea, okay? Well, let me give you the quick answer here, and then we're gonna spend the whole sermon teasing it out. But in summary, the reason why this church in Laodicea it was in sh such bad shape is because they have weakened the resurrection power of Christ from within their midst. They have weakened, they have dulled the power of Jesus' resurrection from within their midst. Now, what will make our conversation today a bit more complicated is that there's a lot of confusion behind what that phrase even means, right? The power of Jesus' resurrection. You guys ever heard a pastor or a Christian say, in the power of Jesus, you know, and then fill in the blank, right? You hear it all the time. In the power of Jesus, and then you fill in kind of a personal request form. Now, when they say that, what power do you think that phrase is referring to there? Well, it's the power that raised Jesus up from the dead. That's what they're appealing to. And the understanding there is that if you can somehow tap into this power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, which is a real power, by the way, the Bible talks about it a lot, but the understanding or the misunderstanding there is that if you can somehow tap into the resurrection power, you can manifest whatever it is your heart desires. You can get healed, you can get clients, you can get money. And, and the question that I think this passage is presenting to us today is whether or not that's the correct way to understand Jesus' resurrection power. Is it a means for us to kind of manifest our own personal agendas? And if not, then what is it a means for? What does it even feel like to have it? Have we, CCC, dulled the power of Jesus' resurrection from within our midst? Do we even know what that feels like to have? Because if, if, if we have dulled it, that means we're in the bottom of the ladder with the church in Laodicea. Are we there? How can we know? Well, let's dive in. Okay, this is God's rebuke to the last church out of the seven in Laodicea. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, 
the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus says the Lord. Okay, three things I want to point out from the passage today about Jesus' resurrection. First, why it's a non-negotiable. Two, how it has counterfeits. And three, what makes it better. Okay? Why it's a non-negotiable, how it has counterfeits, and what makes the resurrection of Christ better than these counterfeits. Let's, let's start with the first point. Why is the resurrection of Christ a non-negotiable? So let me just start off by showing you where in the passage do we even see this emphasis of Jesus' resurrection power? Because that actual phrase, the resurrection of Jesus, you don't see that in the passage anywhere, right? But in fact, it's the main theme. How so? Show me. Okay. Look at the way Jesus introduce, introduces himself in verse 14. Read verse 14 again. Jesus there introduces himself as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Okay, now we've got to do some theologizing here, okay? So stick with me for a bit. But let me ask you, what do you think it means when Jesus said, he's the beginning of God's creation? Like, what does that mean? Well, let's deduce this. Here's what it can't mean, okay? It can't mean that baby Jesus right, like the human person Jesus that was born as a child on earth was the beginning of God's creation. That can't be what he's referring to here, right? Why? Because obviously the human baby Jesus was born after the world was already created, right? So he can't be referring to baby Jesus. Okay, then some may say, maybe Jesus isn't referring to himself as the incarnate human child, right? But as God the Son, like the second person of the Trinity, who... Uh, be existed before the world was created, who existed before he took on flesh and become a human being, right? Maybe Jesus is referring to himself as, as that. Now, well, that's a better guess, but I also don't think that's quite right either. Why? Because many, many passages in the Bible says that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, before he was incarnate as a human being, eternally existed with God the Father before anything else was created, Okay? In other words, God the Son was not created. Remember when, when Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer? I think it was John 17, right? He said this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you when? 
before the world existed. Before anything existed, in eternity past, God the Son has always had the same glory as God the Father. So since God the Son is not a created being, therefore he cannot be the beginning of God's creation. You see what I'm saying? Following? Okay. So then, the question remains, at what point is his existence, Jesus referring, is Jesus referring to here, as the point of when he says he's the beginning of God's creation? Well, we've deduced, it's not the eternal state of him as God the Son before he was incarnate. Neither is it the state of him as the human baby Jesus when he was incarnate. But in fact, it's the state after he was resurrected from the dead. When he was resurrected from the dead, that's when he's referring to here as being the beginning of God's creation. What in the world? Okay, stick with me. Two more minutes, I promise. Actually, that's a lie. It'd be, it'd be more than two minutes. But just stick with me nonetheless, okay? Let me read to you Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 18. And I think this will help. Paul says this. He says, he, Paul says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There it is again, that theme of the beginning of creation, firstborn of creation, okay? But what does that mean? Well, if you read verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul continues, and he says this. He's the beginning, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This will all connect. Just hang with me. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 connects Jesus as the firstborn of all creation to being equal as a firstborn from the dead. Where's the connection? Let me put it all together for us, okay? Colossians 1 and the whole Bible is saying that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he became the firstborn and the beginning of God's creation. Or, more precisely, when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he became the firstborn and the beginning of God's new creation. When Jesus was resurrected, he was the first fruits, the Bible says elsewhere. He's the beginning of this process toward new creation. That's what Jesus meant here in verse 14 when he said that I'm the beginning of God's creation. What he's really saying more precisely is that he's the beginning of God's new creation. Now, why didn't he just say that? I don't know. You can ask him later. But that's, that's what he means here. Okay? He is the beginning of new creation. There will come a day the Bible says, where God will usher in a new creation and he'll make all things new. At times, this place has been called heaven. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer calls it earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes the book of Revelation calls it a new city. Other times it calls it a new heaven and a new earth. Either way, it's, a, it's this place where sin and death and tears are no more. Wars will end. Pain and suffering will be done with. But it's not only that. This is not only a place where everything bad will go away, but it's also a place, the Bible says, where everything true, good, and beautiful will finally find its origin. It's a place, C.S. Lewis famously said, where all the beauty that we've ever experienced in this world will finally found where it came from the deepest belly laughter you ever had with a friend. The tastiest bite of food you've ever chewed in your mouth. 
the sweetest song you've ever allowed to swallow you whole, the best shoulder cry you've ever had, the deepest loves your heart's ever stumbled upon. All of that, Lewis says, is but a scent of a flower we have not yet found, an echo of a tune we have not yet heard, and news from a country we have never yet visited. This country, this new creation, is where things are heading toward, God's saying. And the firstborn, the beginning, the pack leader that'll lead us there is the resurrected Christ. He is the beginning. He's the first man who's ever beaten death and therefore is paving a way toward this deathless world. That's what Jesus means here. And we Christians, we're called to journey with him toward that. But the reason why, friends, our Christianity often feels dead is because we're not doing that. We're not journeying with this resurrected Christ toward this new creation. Why not? Because at some point, we've turned Jesus merely into a debt payer instead of a pack leader. We've made him a debt payer, not a pack leader. At some point, we've watered down the gospel and defined it merely as Jesus dying for my sins. Now, don't get me wrong. It is that. My goodness, it is that. But it's much more than that. The gospel isn't just that Jesus died for my sins. The gospel is that Jesus died for my sins so that I can victoriously march with him toward this new creation as I become an agent of renewal throughout the whole way. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And the Christians in Laodicea stopped doing that. They stopped being agents of renewal who were marching towards new creation. They were neither hot nor cold, God says. They were lukewarm. Now, what does that mean? A little bit more background on that, okay? Not long. Back then, pre-water purification technology, okay? A city was very dependent upon how good of the water source near them was, and the water source near Laodicea was, was a bad water source. Now, it just so happens that the two other cities near Laodicea had a good water source. One city's water source produced hot springs of water. It was good for healing wounds. It was good for other uses of purification. And the other city's water produced cold, good water for drinking for other and had other life-giving qualities. But the water source in Laodicea was famously known to be useless. It had things in it that made it undrinkable. It had things in it that made it unusable. And the temperature of it happened to be lukewarm. And this useless, lukewarm water is the analogy God used to describe the Christians in this church. They weren't being agents of renewal who were marching toward new creation with the risen Christ. They weren't doing any of that. They were lukewarm. They were lukewarm. Now, don't get me wrong. These lukewarm Christians were still saved born-again Christians. How do we know that? Look at verse 19. God there says, or describes them as those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. You see? These people are people that God still considers to be, what? His beloved. They were Christians. They were his. But their Christianity has become so powerless, so dead, that it's as useless as this lukewarm water. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they stopped sharing the gospel to their neighbors. 
Maybe they stop participating in mercy ministry efforts that would renew the brokenness in their city as they show the gospel through word and deed. Lukewarmness can take many forms. But the point is, these guys have dampened Jesus' victorious resurrection power and they're no longer doing gospel work through word or deed. And they're lukewarm. And if they repent, they'll be spat out. But see, the thing is, here's where it's tricky. I don't think they ever noticed this loss of power. I don't think they ever felt it. Why not? Because a very good counterfeit was close at hand. Let's go to our second point. How the power of Jesus' resurrection has counterfeits. Okay. Thanks for sticking with me to that technical kind of point, but I think that's necessary. But let me just summarize it real quick, okay, before we move forward. What we've seen is that if the power of Jesus' resurrection is truly present within our midst, we won't be lukewarm Christians, okay? But instead, we'll feel excitement and fervor and power that's gonna drive us to become agents of renewal in the city that we're in, okay? That's what it means to have Jesus' resurrection power in our midst. But the thing about this church in Laodicea is instead of having this excitement and fervor and power that will make them agents of renewal on earth, instead, in verse 17, they said this, I'm rich. <laughs> I'm rich. That's what they said, literally. I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Okay, now how in the world can being rich replace the excitement and the fervor and the power of Jesus' resurrection? Well, because it almost feels the same, doesn't it? Every good counterfeit has similarities to the real thing. What do I mean? Well, do you remember how you felt, friends, whenever you came across a lot of money in the past? Some of you are like, I'm still waiting, Tez. <laughs> okay. Well, do you remember then how you felt when you roped in that huge new client? Do you remember how you felt when you lobbied that huge new deal? Do you remember how you felt when you got that exciting dream promotion or that dream job? Remember what you felt? Didn't it feel exciting and fervorous and powerful and victorious? Some might even say it felt like a resurrection of sorts. Hmm? A taste of new hope. Every counterfeit has similarities with the real thing. Now, by the way, do you know all that a pastor needs to say in order to keep you in his church after you experience that financial victory? You wanna, you wanna, I'll tell you a secret. You know what a pastor needs to say? This is all he needs to say. All he needs to say is this. Praise the Lord, that was the power of Jesus. And all of a sudden, with that, the counterfeit work is complete. And you've been tricked. You think you're experiencing the power of Jesus' resurrection because it feels the same, but you're not. You may feel blessed and rich and wise and honorable, but look at the end of verse 17. If you believe that's a definition of Jesus' power of resurrection, in reality, you're pitiable, poor, 
blind, and naked. Earthly riches is not what Jesus' resurrection power brings to the table. Don't let it fool you. Anoint your eyes, Jesus says at the end of verse 18. You gotta change your perspective. Anoint your eyes. We gotta stop looking at Jesus through the lenses of money. Switch it. We gotta start looking at money through the lenses of Jesus. Anoint your eyes. Resurrection power isn't seen by how rich you are. It's seen by how much you use your resources to be agents of gospel renewal on earth. Do you have resurrection power? Do you want it? But beware, Jesus says. You want it, you might get it, but when you get it, your life is gonna be much harder. It will. Your life will start to feel like gold that's being constantly renewed and refined by fire, he says in verse 18. So it's gonna feel like, why? Because when his resurrection power makes you start seeing money through the lenses of Jesus and not the other way around, your conscience is gonna constantly bug you. It's gonna bug you every day to reprioritize your resources for gospel work. Now, that doesn't mean that you should give everything away, okay? No, no, no. The Bible says to enjoy the fruits of your labor. That's good. That's right. That's fine. The Bible says that those who don't take care of their families are worse than unbelievers. There are many other godly uses for your finances. But still, even with all that, at the very least, we'll end up reprioritizing some things, right? Because none of us are perfect in that area. We will. And that reprioritization process will feel like fire. It'll suck. You know how I know? Because it sucks for me too. <laughs> and I'm a pastor. It does. You don't think I take deep, long breaths <laughs> before I give my resources away to various gospel work in the city? I do. Some breaths I take are so deep, I have yet to exhale. <laughs> it sucks. But that's the refining power the refining fire that Jesus is talking about here. And if we stay true to that purification process, as painful as it might be, we will experience something that riches, Jesus promises here, could never ever counterfeit. What is it? Look at verse 20. We will experience a deep sense of intimacy with Christ. Look at verse 20. Jesus says that if you repent, if you actually let me in as the king of your heart instead of money, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Money's a great counterfeit, okay? It'll make you feel many things that the resurrected Christ can also make you feel. Excitement, fervor, power, victory. But you know the one thing money can't do is it can't love you. It can't love you. It doesn't care about having a meal with you. It's not interested in a relationship with you at all. Which brings us to our third point. What makes the resurrected Christ much better than money, okay? All right. Let's remember again who it is here that Jesus is primarily addressing. It's not non-believers, it's believers. Right? Born again Christians who he loves and reproves and disciplines, verse 19 says. You know, if someone else's kid acts up in public, 
I could care less, right? Whatever, it's someone else's kid. But if my kid acts up in public, guess what'll happen? You best believe. <laughs> I'll discipline them, right? I'll put them in their place. Why? Because I love them. I feel ownership over them. These are people Jesus feels ownership toward. These are his people, born-again Christians. But what makes this confusing is, if these are born-again Christians who Jesus loves, then logically, shouldn't they have already opened the door and let Jesus in? Shouldn't Jesus already be residing in the home of their soul? What does he mean then, if you knock, I'll open? And you're absolutely right. Jesus should already be in their house, but see, perhaps he's still hanging out in the living room. There are deeper doors, you know, that lead to deeper rooms in your heart. And Jesus is committed to knocking on each and one of them. And see, money isn't. Money doesn't care about having a deeper relationship with you, which really is the problem with these counterfeit gods, right? We submit to their demands, but they could care less about us. They pretend to, but it's always, the Indonesian slang, pehape, right? It's always false promises. What do I mean? Well, okay, if you believe in money, for example, if you serve that as the ultimate thing in your life, you know what you'll feel? You'll always feel poor. You see, if you make your looks ultimate, you'll never feel attractive enough. If you make earthly honor ultimate, you'll always feel disrespected by everyone. If you make popularity ultimate, you'll always feel insecure. If you make your kid's success ultimate, they'll always disappoint you. You see, these counterfeit gods, they act like they care, but they never de deliver on promise. They never do. Why? Because they don't care about you. They'll suck you dry with false promises. But Jesus here is saying, he is interested in you. He's knocking, and he actually wants to have a meal with you, a relationship with you. And you know how you know that he's not lying? You know that he's not lying by remembering how it is that you and him ended up in the same house under the same roof in the first place. How did you get there? Hmm? How did you and him end up in the same house to begin with? It wasn't because you worked really, really hard. It wasn't because you signed up for tons of overtime hours. It wasn't because you sacrificed your whole life for him, like money will demand of you. No, no. The Bible says that you can be in the same house with him because he worked really, really hard. Because he endured everything. And because he sacrificed his own life for you. That's how you know he's not lying. Money says, die for me. Trade me with everything that really matters in life. Jesus says, I'll die for you so that you can have everything that truly matters in life. He's better. What do you mean money can't give you things that matter in life, Tez? That's naive. Money buys everything that matters in life. Anoint your eyes. 
solve it. If you don't, you will continue letting the wrong king in. And it's absolutely crucial for the right tenant to end up in the central heart control room that you have. You gotta be careful who goes in deeper. One king will kill you. The other king died for you. It's your call. Will you anoint your eyes? Will you endure the painful process of resource reprioritization and continue to let in the right king into those deeper doors? Or will you continue to be fooled by a counterfeit power that feels like but is not the power of Jesus' resurrection? It's your call. And what's scary is the health of this church is fully dependent on those calls that you make. But this is where my jurisdiction ends. I can't open those doors for you. So I'll stop here, and I'll end in the way that Jesus ended all of these rebukes to these seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we've been fooled. Money has presented itself to be a good king. Money has presented itself to be a good God. And Father, help us to not demonize money. It is a good thing. It's just a horrible God. And I pray that you have mercy upon your people, have mercy upon this church. Surely none of us prioritize our resources perfectly. Surely the lives of this counterfeit world that has counterfeit gods in it has won in some way in our hearts. But when we fail, Father, let us lift our eyes up to see where you succeeded. Where we are weak, let us see where you are strong. You, the richest being in the universe, became poor. You gave up all of your riches you died naked on a cross while Roman soldiers were divvying up your, your earthy possessions right below you, mocking you, shaming you. And you did all that so that you can make us spiritually rich and have everything that really matters in life. Protect us, your people, your church, from the lies of money. And may we always look upon Calvary and be driven by the resurrected power of Christ as we also behold the empty tomb, walking towards new creation as agents of gospel renewal in the city that we're in. May you give us ears that hear and actual lives that match it throughout the week. In Jesus' name we pray.